time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back, boys and girls. Cold War episode twenty-seven. Hey, buddy. Ooh. Hey, how's it going? Oh, it's hot. It's scary. Uh, we're recording this uh, November eleventh, two thousand and sixteen, my time. Um, we've just done an hour breaking down the Trump POTUS election, mm-hmm. um, but now we're going to move on. We're going to talk Cold War. Big, co- yeah. big. We're going to talk Yalta. 27 episodes it's taken us, Ray, to get into the guts of Yalta. Uh, we, we, we originally thought we'd do it probably episode three. Uh, 20, 24 <laughs> hours later. We... <laughs> but we are. Yeah, Woo! we're going to get there. We're, yeah, no, I, I never realized talking about Stalin, a mass murder and everything like that would be a would be a bomb for my mind to get over what's happened to the election. So, yeah, let's talk about uh, the big three and get this sucker going. So, uh, a few episodes ago, before we did the Cambridge Five stuff, uh, we sort of set up Yalta at Lavadia Palace in the Crimea. Uh, but now we're going to get into the first couple of days and, and talk about what actually went on. Um, now, the Yalta Conference is still hotly debated amongst historians. It's notorious. Uh, a lot of historians sort of peg the Yalta Conference as the beginnings of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Uh, some kind of, uh, particularly American historians, blame FDR and Churchill for being weak uh, in their negotiations with Stalin during Yalta. Right. Other historians give them more credit. And we're going to try and unpick that today and try and provide different perspectives on how these guys manage themselves during the Yalton negotiations. And hopefully by the end of the next few episodes, we're going to take our time to do this, but at the end of the next few episodes, you'll have a pretty good understanding about why Yalta's important, what happened, how it happened, and uh, the the role that it played in what happened uh, in in the early stages of the Cold War. Yeah, and we're gonna and we're really gonna try to explain where everybody's coming from, their various positions of power, perceived power, and once we do that, a lot of this will make sense as far as who was able to get what done and why, and we can put Yalta in its proper context. Um, within the Cold War, because I think we're going to surprise a lot of people, but we certainly have the uh, the quotes and the evidence uh, to back it up. Now, uh, just to remind people, it took place in the first part of February 1945. The first plenary session was uh, on February 4th. It ran for eight days, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, now, World War Two was still going on. Uh, the the Red Army wasn't far from Berlin. Uh, there's still a few months of war left, uh, mm-hmm. but both both in terms of the European War and the Pacific War. But they, it was they kind of all knew that it was it was in the closing stages. But within a few months after the end of the Yalta Conference, mm-hmm. what they didn't know is that Roosevelt would be dead. Uh, Hitler would be dead. Not only would the Nazis be defeated, but Churchill would be defeated. He would be out of office. Mm -hmm. And Truman would drop two atomic bombs on Japan. All of this would happen within the next six months. Yeah. But of course, the players at Yalta didn't know that. I think certainly FDR suspected that he might not be long for the world. He was a very sick man. And as we'll see, 
may not have had all of his marbles, um, may have not been operating um, in full mm-hmm. full steam. Right. And he ironically, was the he was the of, youngest one. <laughs> I was just saying the same so, thing. So I'm yeah. sorry, yeah. No, that's all right. Yeah, he was the youngest of the three, but um, very, very ill. Right. Now, before they got to Yalta, Roosevelt had reluctantly accepted the percentages deal that Churchill and Stalin had worked out privately earlier mm-hmm. that we've mentioned, the naughty document, as Churchill referred to it. And within months of that, he had seen the British intervene in the Greek Civil War. Again, we've talked about that in some detail in a previous episode. He'd also seen Stalin support the PCNL, the Polish Committee of National Liberation, who were the Soviet-supported Polish provisional government, as opposed to the Polish government in exile. Both of these acts were a contravention of the Atlantic Charter, which was supposed to promise people self-determination. But of course, as we know, Stalin didn't sign the Atlantic Charter. He, <laughs> he, said, he snarled at it, said it was worthless. Right. Churchill did, but still intervened in the Greek Civil War. So shows you what he, how much he gives a shit about the Atlantic Charter. Um, Roosevelt, however was really trying to stick to this idea of self-determination. He had justified the war to the American people as a fight for the right to self-determination for European countries. But, of course, I would argue that this isn't about altruism. This was really about Americans making sure that at the end of the war, these European countries would end up as open markets for American products and and, uh, financiers. Absolutely, got- yeah. I'm sorry, I was just going to say you were right. So Stalin's already breaking the agreement of the Atlantic Charter, even though he didn't sign it. Churchill has, and they can both see, or at least FDR can see, that this war is going to be over with quickly because even though there was the Battle of the Bulge, even though the Russians were having trouble in uh, Prussia, and even though you had the whole catastrophe of Operation Market Garden where uh, I think 20,000 uh, men were killed um, to the north of Germany, the point is north west of Germany. The point is this is about to be over with soon. And FDR knows he's got to get in there because the more this war is over with, the less leverage he's going to have with Stalin because Stalin is going to need him even less. This is wrapping up way too quickly. So even though he is near his death, he has already told his son, James, look, if I die, take the family ring and you wear it. And, and, and my will is in the safe. I mean, he's ready for this. He knows his end is coming. He has got to do something with Stalin because Churchill can't do it on his own. The United States is the larger of the two. He has got to get in there and get Stalin to agree to the one thing that he is absolutely obsessed about, and that is the post-war peace. And only he is the only one right now focused on it. Yeah, FDR, when he was talking to his son, his son said, um, you know, if you die, I take the ring. Who should the power go to? And FDR said, to the strongest. (laughs) And his son went, no! <laughs> oh no, hey, that's the Alexander show. Sorry, other show. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, FDR, very frail, uh, makes an even more arduous journey than the previous one, 18 months earlier or 14 months oh. earlier, whenever it was, to Tehran. He now goes all the way to the Crimea. Very, very sick man. But he is determined to try and find a way for these three powers to work together in the post war world. It would be his last great act as president. Churchill, on the other hand, um, you know, he's obviously hoping that he will play uh, an equal role with the other two at Yalta, mm-hmm. but but very quickly uh, <laughs> discovers that he's a minor player. He's the junior partner in this. It's right. really the Soviets and the Americans primarily because of the role that each of the three is playing from a military sense. Yes. The Soviets obviously had the biggest land army. The Americans had a smaller but still formidable land force and, and occupied the major role of naval and air operations at this stage. And the British are really just providing a supplemental role to the United States. So consequently... 
no one really gives a fuck what Churchill has to say. Uh, (laughs) It's kind of sad, really. Well, Churchill has already learned, and um, I think we covered this kind of before. I'm not, I can't really remember, but I'm just going to just give it real quick. So Churchill had an idea, and he he tried to talk to FDR about this on Malta before they went to Yalta, and FDR and the his military advisors just shut him down. Churchill literally wanted to drive through the Balkans to link up with slash stop the Soviet forces from coming any further into Central Europe. He's like, he was telling, um, he wanted to tell FDR, forget the big push in Southern France. Let's send those men around. Let's push up through there. We can tell Stalin, look, we don't need you to come any further. We've got this. Thank you for everything that you've done. But the Americans were like, no, I don't even want to talk about it. We're going to push um, from France like we like we have planned. And there was a, there was a moment. Unfortunately, it's not on record when uh, George Marshall, uh, uh, r- running the war for FDR, pretty much takes the British into a room. He doesn't take anyone in there to record the notes, but their own personal diaries bear this out. He went in there and he ripped him a new one. And he's normally a very calm, uh, controlled man, but he went in there and he ripped the British. This is what we're going to do. We are dictating it. We are partners, but we're the ones who are putting up most of the men and the material and we're supplying you. This is the way it's going to go. Don't bring that up again. Don't bring up anything like that again. And so even before they get to Yalta, Churchill sadly knows his place his military knows knows their place and they're pretty much just trailing behind fdr who like you said is starting to lose it mentally he certainly lost it physically and he's churchill is just going to try to salvage as much as he can whether it's his dignity whether it's uh, great britain's position in all of this but he's certainly going to give it his best effort over these uh, over this eight days coming in yalta yeah, poor Churchill, as we've said before, was desperate not to see the British Empire broken up on his watch. But it seems yeah. evident from some of the uh, reports that he kind of knew he was a man of the past and that the empire was a thing of the past. He was he was trying to hold on to the prestige and the power and status of the empire, but he could see it slipping between his fingers. His daughter, Sarah, who travelled with him to Yalta, saw him sitting huddled in his greatcoat on his converted bomber and wrote to her mother that he looked like a poor, hot, pink baby about to cry. Oh, no. Fucking fucking rough when that's what your daughter says about you. Prime Minister of England, a poor, hot, pink baby about to cry. She called it like she saw it. Yeah. Now, Stalin, on the other hand, came to Yalta as uh, as kind of the, the main man, uh, right. he, uh, as we know, has stalled this next meeting of the big three as long as he possibly could. Primarily, mm-hmm. we think, historians tend to think, so he could capture as much territory as possible. So the uh, Soviets were in the strongest negotiating position. It's like people sometimes talk about the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. That's right. Well, in this case, it's he who uh, occupies the territory makes the rules. <laughs> uh, not very much you can... When, when you've got the largest land army and they occupy this area, you can't really say, go away. He's like, Fuck you, I'm here. I'm, I'm staying. Yeah, I think there were like 70... Kilo- parts of the Soviet army were like 70 kilometers away from the west eastern end edge of Berlin. So they're there. This could be over. And I guess one of the big fears is FDR is like thinking, oh, shit, Stalin could technically in some ways end this war by himself. We have got to get him to agree to a meeting. And then I got to charm the fuck out of him to get from him what I need before this war is over. Yes. And this is partly where some of the problems arose these negotiations as we'll see now stalin's um intentions at yalta were to get agreement on the things that mattered most to him and to the soviets as we've we've been talking about this i think since our first episodes he wanted a deep security zone in eastern europe a mm-hmm. sword on a co- sword on a cordon sanitaire a buffer zone around the USSR. Why? Because they've been invaded over and over and over again in the last century, uh, each time much more destructive than the last. And they, I mean, and they didn't want it to happen again. So they wanted a massive buffer zone 
to at least give them the, the best possible opportunity if they were ever to be invaded again to get ready and not be taken by surprise like they were during Operation Barbarossa in 1941. He also wanted to ensure that Germany would not be in a position to attack Russia again at least for 50 years. Right. He wanted to see Germany destroyed, dismembered. He wanted to see its people moved. He wanted to see their industrial uh, infrastructure destroyed. He wanted to see Germany absolutely crushed and eviscerated, and he wanted the agreement of his partners on that subject. Yeah, and you can't really blame him. I mean, as cruel as that sounds, I mean, you can't really blame the guy because he certainly plans on being in power uh, a, a lot longer. But again, when you have all these, when you have these three different leaders and they have different attitudes, they have different morals, they have different um, goals for this meeting. How could this possibly work? But as we're going to show, these three actually came together and, and had a, a credible amount of uh, accomplishment over the next eight days. And uh, the other thing that Stalin wanted was reparations from mm-hmm. Germany. Massive reparations to help pay for some of the damage that the Nazis had done to the USSR. And at one point he said, we are interested in decisions, not in discussions. Uh, When he got to Yalta. But as we'll find out, not many decisions got made. Now, again, I just want to, I know we kind of said this before, but just picture you're sitting across from Stalin. And for him, this is, this is not personal. This is just business. You've invaded us. Obviously, I need a buffer zone. I need the people that keep invading me. I need them to be weakened. And so when I'm talking to you and excuse me, when you're talking to Stalin, he's not going to get excited. He's not going to get uh, he's not going to blow up and yell and stuff like that. He's going to get what he wants. He needs decisions. He needs hard facts to work with. He doesn't need eloquence. He doesn't need impassioned pleas, which he's going to get a lot of those from Churchill. He just needs decisions made and moved on so they can go on from there. And so as this as this conference goes on the next couple of days, he is going to truly appreciate and understand what FDR is doing as FDR is talking to him and, sh- and charming him. And he's going to really, really not appreciate the attempts at Churchill to move him emotionally because Churchill, as we're going to find out, is totally wasting his time. Yeah, and I guess the key point I want to make again, and I know I've said this over and over throughout the series so far, when you look at those three priorities that Stalin had, they're incredibly reasonable priorities. Yeah, from his point like, of view, absolutely. Yeah, for, for, for fuck, from anybody's point of view. I mean, they're incredibly... They're, if I was running the Soviet Union at the time, I would want exactly those things. It, right. That, I would want a buffer zone, uh, which means not, not necessarily that you take over uh, and occupy the countries or, or install puppet governments, but you want friendly governments, you want governments in those security zones that you can trust will not uh, join uh, join a pact with anyone who's trying to attack you mm-hmm. that will uh, you know form a, an alliance that you can that can be relied upon that uh, will give you plenty of advance warning if somebody's trying to attack you that aren't going to allow uh, enemies to sneak across their borders into your country. So that, I think, is incredibly uh, reasonable. Second, now, and keep in mind, too, that the United Kingdom and the United States didn't have to worry about these things because they had big fucking oceans (laughs) protecting them. They didn't have any border countries that you had to worry about. I mean, it's not that far from France to England, but as we know, England's navy had, had... done a good job at defending them for a long time their air force now had done a reasonable job at keeping the nazis out for um but uh, the united states had canada mexico uh free security as as we've discussed with some of our guests so they didn't have to worry about a cordon sanitaire uh stalin did and i think that's incredibly reasonable uh request uh issue reparations again incredibly reasonable and dismantling Germany, which it had invaded them not once, but twice in in Stalin's lifetime, 
you know, I think wanting to make sure that they didn't have the ability to ever, ever, ever do that again, at least for half a century. Again, incredibly reasonable. So there's nothing about what Stalin wants going into Yalta that I can look at and go, well, he's just a fucking insane dictator. Like, that's just crazy. It's not like that old Steve Martin routine where he takes hostages and he says his demands are he wants a million dollars in unmarked bills, he wants a private jet, and I want the letter M struck from the English alphabet. <laughs> <clears throat> You know, Stalin's not going into this with any unreasonable uh, requests. Right. If, if, I could, if I could be the good American for a moment, if I can, uh, be, you know, Americans have a certain point of view of World War II and, uh, and uh, the Cold War and stuff. There is one part of that that's true um, that I think a lot of the rest of the world doesn't agree with. I can't remember when we talked about our sources uh, for, the, for the Yalta conference. I think after the Soviet... Uh, the uh, USSR broke down, uh, a lot of new sources became available, which is where a lot of this information comes from up until, you know, what, mid-90s or whatever. We didn't know a lot of this stuff. But as an American, it, it made me feel a little bit better to know that, according to Soviet sources, there were general plans um, for a world revolution, a world communism communist revolution to try and take over a, a lot of other countries, including some major countries. And Stalin was saying by the time of Yalta, look, maybe we need to put that on hold for about, you know, 15, 20 years. We've got to rebuild. We've got to rebuild our infrastructure. We've got to repopulate because obviously we have millions dead. And then we'll go on to see if we can turn the world more to our, our way. So for all those Americans out there who are thinking, yeah, but they were trying to take over the world. Yes, but no, they were certainly going to get away with whatever they could. I mean, you can't blame Stalin after everything his country's been through for trying to get away with something if you let him. But at the very least, when it comes to by the time of Yalta, they're like, okay, we have to put everything on hold. We'll worry about domination of whatever form or scope later. Let's let's just get through this conference, get what we need so we can start to rebuild our country that has been destroyed again by the Germans. And let's keep in mind that at this point, the Soviets had pretty much single-handedly defeated the Nazis. Absolutely. Uh, taking the huge brunt of it <clears throat> anyway. So uh, you would think it would be reasonable for him to get some payback for that. <clears throat> not that he had much choice. I mean, it's not like he could decide whether or not to uh, fight the Nazis. They kind of uh, forced him into that situation. But still. Yeah. So anyway, the, um, the uh, conference itself, starts on at 5 p.m. on February the 4th in the ballroom of the Lavadia Palace, which is where Roosevelt is staying. Each of the uh, three guys had their own uh, residence. Uh, nice. They decided to ha have the plenary sessions in Lavadia because it was easier for uh, Roosevelt and his wheelchair, obviously. Not because, the whole, not because the whole place was bugged? Well, they were, <laughs> wherever they had, it was going to be bugged. Come on. You don't have barrier uh, uh, building these places without bugging them, of course. Bug everywhere. Um, yeah. Now, Stalin, as the host, was the first to speak, but he used the occasion to pass the mic, so to speak, to Roosevelt to open the conference. And uh, President Roosevelt accepted the honour, stating that there was nothing in law or tradition that allotted him the role, but... It was only by chance that he had opened the meetings in Tehran. Um, and in the American delegation, rumor had it that the president got a great kick out of being invited by Stalin to play the role as the uh, elder statesman, maybe, in, in running the conference. Right. Um, if I could just but, add on to that real quick. Yes. So you, you would think that this is a, a, a real coup for FDR because... Just like Stalin, just like Churchill, he's got his own things he wants to talk about. And he has a plan already in his head, as we all know. FDR was a brilliant politician. You don't have to agree with him to acknowledge he was a brilliant politician. He was going to cover some of the easier issues first, build up some momentum, build up, renew his relationship with Stalin, and then over the next couple of days, try to tackle some of the uh, the harder things that, that he knew he was going to have a harder time with Stalin. And now here he is. He's the one who gets to kind of dictate you know, how and when they talk about things. So you think this would be a very brilliant thing for him. But as Cam is probably going to tell you, 
Even in this, Stalin had a reason for turning it over to FDR. And the other thing I wanted to add was when FDR gave his fourth and final uh, speech when, he, when he's inaugurated, even though it was a very short speech because he was very sick and it was very cold outside, he said, we have learned the simple truth, as Emerson said, that the only way to have a friend is to be one. So he is making it abundantly clear to Stalin, you and I are very different. And in fact, I think there's a lot of ways that you are far from perfect. But right now we need to build a relationship because we have to consider the entire world and not just this war and not just our needs, but we have to consider the entire world and the, and, and world peace. So we have to find some way to get along. So I'm willing to be your friend if you're willing to be mine. Yeah, and this this debate about how sincere or naive FDR was in this Both. attempt to yeah. be a friend of Stalin's and to find a way to get along these obviously very different ideologies with a lot of water under the bridge... Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I don't know, man. I, I tend to think that they were both genuine about it, and um, I'll back I that think up so. with quotes yeah. and things here. I think they both recognised that at least for the next twenty years, they needed to get along and find a way to operate mm-hmm. within their own spheres of influence uh, on a friend level. I mean, the, the the Soviets needed time to to rebuild. You know, this whole thing about world revolution that you mentioned earlier, we've talked about this before. Yes, the basic uh, communist theory was that in order for communism to survive in one country, you had to have it in in all countries because otherwise the capitalists would try and crush it. They would try and crush any socialist or communist experiment. So, yes, they had this plan for communist uh, global revolution, but it didn't necessarily mean invading every country of the world right. and taking it over with Bolsheviks. It meant communism, uh, being sure. supporting commun- the communist movement right. uh, around the world because they, as I said, they believed that was necessary for communism to have anyway. But Stalin had already knocked that on the head a long time earlier with his whole premise of, well, we need to make it work in Soviet Union first and then we'll worry about what we do in the rest of the world. So he'd already turned that on its head Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we'll see, as a result of Yalta and Potsdam, uh, he had to flip his own communist and one country model uh, on its head yet again. Um, now, Roosevelt, uh, as I said, was offered the role of kind of being the chair of the conference by Stalin, even though mm-hmm. Stalin was hosting the conference. But this was no accident. This is something that Stalin had planned uh, and cunningly executed. Now, before the sessions started in the afternoon at five o'clock, Stalin had met privately, first with Churchill, then with Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, Churchill had been trying to meet privately with Roosevelt, first at Malta, then at Yalta, right. uh, and Roosevelt had declined because he didn't want to give... Stalin any reason to think that they were ganging up on him, but he mm-hmm. does meet with Stalin privately. Now, uh, with the in both meetings, uh, according to observers, the two men greeted each other warmly as if they were old friends and the discussions were friendly. Stalin updated them both on the progress of the Red Army against the Nazis and also wanted to push each of them for a major new offensive, but he pushed each for a different version. Now, when he met with Churchill, he pushed them to uh, start a new offensive into the Ruhr region uh, and another towards Vienna, Mm -hmm. something you mentioned before that they had already been trying to do, (laughs) but had been shot down by the Americans who wanted uh, an onslaught against Germany's western frontier. Now, here Stalin is... (laughs) suggesting to Churchill the same plan the British had been suggesting to the Americans that they had never mentioned to Stalin before. Now, you would think, perhaps, that Churchill might go, how the fuck do you know what we've been talking about? (laughs) You have five people from Cambridge spying on me or something? But no, he just went, yes, yes, very good idea, Mr. Stalin. <laughs> but um, I'm afraid uh, our American friends don't agree with us. 
And Stalin went, fair enough. All right, forget it. Forget I mentioned it. Forget I mentioned it. But <laughs> personally, pri- privately, Winnie, I think that's the fucking great. I think you're right, man. I think right. you're Between a fucking you genius. Right. Between you and me, I think you're the man, and that was the right idea. Fuck, these Americans, what do they know? And just to let everybody know, in the rural valley was where Germany had the vast majority of its armaments, the Krupp family. If they could have taken that over any quick, quicker than they did, obviously the Germans wouldn't be getting any new weapons, planes, tanks, guns, that kind of stuff. So again, like you were saying, Stalin wants to crush them as far as their industry. He wants to take everything he possibly can. And we should make it clear Everywhere that the Soviet troops have gone, they are taking everything of value of whatever country they're in. It does not matter because Stalin's like, hey, someone's got to pay for all this stuff that I've got to rebuild. So they're taking everything of value. They're going to want a lot more from uh, from uh, what's left of Germany. Even though he wants the place drawn and quartered, he wants as much as he can get as far as material wealth because he knows it's going to cost shit ton to refix his country to make it back the way it was before June 22nd, 1941. Hmm. Yeah. So here, uh, here Stalin is telling Churchill what he wants to hear and making Churchill feel like they're on the same page. Nice. Stalin then leaves that meeting and goes to meet with Roosevelt and uh, tells him the complete opposite. <laughs> uh, what I think you should do is advance along the whole Western Front. Big, massive advance. And Roosevelt goes, oh, my God, that's exactly what we think, too. We are, man, we are like fucking telepathic, man. Simpatico, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, you are such a clever, insightful guy, Mr. Stalin. Well, you know, I try. I I just sit down, I'm like, what would FDR want? And then it came to me, so, uh, you know, I agree with you. Uh, he's got president, balls. Stalin's got balls. I'll give him that. Uh, fucking, it's great. You must have been like, just how does he keep a straight face doing this stuff, man? He loves because he's been because he's been he's been pulling this kind of shit back at home <laughs> for decades, right? Manipulating <laughs> yeah. people. Left, he's he's the master manipulator. Um, now Roosevelt also suggested to Stalin in this meeting that they should create a direct communication between Eisenhower and the Soviet Soviet military leadership as they got closer to Berlin. They should coordinate directly, yeah. which they hadn't been doing up until this point, surprisingly right. to me. Uh, and Stalin agreed that this was probably a good idea. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah again, Mr. FDM, Mr. President, another brilliant idea. I bow to your wishes. I was about to say the same thing. Man, <laughs> <it> like... Does... <laughs> And it doesn't cost Stalin anything. As we're going to see for the next eight days, he is more than happy to pay lip service and to say yes to things that don't cost him a cent. And this is one of those many things like, yeah, if that's what you want, Mr. President, I totally agree. In fact, I think that's a brilliant idea. Why didn't we do it sooner? Roosevelt also tells him that uh, he's in support of reparations uh, from Germany to the Soviets. He says that as he's traveled to Yalta through the Crimea and seen the senseless destruction by the Germans in the Crimea region, he would like to destroy twice as many Germans as had already been destroyed so far. We definitely have to destroy 50,000 German Prussian officers, he said, remembering (laughs) Stalin's toast in Tehran. That was a very good toast, he says. Remember, Churchill was upset and stormed out of the room at this toast, but FDR's going... That's not enough. We need to kill more. So this is FDR probably doing a Stalin. He's telling Stalin what Stalin wants to hear. Stalin's telling FDR what he wants to hear. They're stroking each other. Yeah, they are. I mean, they're both master negotiators and and, and manipulators in a sense. Um, He's trying to present himself as being on Stalin's side. He also makes out that he's not always in agreement with the British. He, he calls the British a peculiar people who wanted to artificially build up a French army against Germany. They wish to have their cake and eat it too, mm. he said about the British. Uh, he said that the British seemed to want the US to restore order in France and then hand them political control. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, and as we'll see as we go on, the issue of 
France's position in the occupation of Germany and the uh, political uh, decision-making about Germany after the war is a, is a major issue at Yalta. But the point here is that Roosevelt is criticising the British privately to Stalin to kind of say, look, I know that, you know, you kind of think that we're in with these guys, but really, Churchill, yeah. bit of a cunt, really. I don't really, you know... <laughs> Bit of a fat cunt. Uh, I don't really have much time for him. There's like a pink, hot, fat child. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're they're stupid. These British really. We had to come in and save their asses. You and me oh, again, God, again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So God. it's it's they're both playing this game. Uh, after the meeting, Stalin apparently said to Molotov about Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Why did nature have to punish him so? Is he any worse than other people? Talking about his his health, obviously. Now, indication that Stalin genuinely liked Roosevelt and cared about him and uh, had a bit of a bromance uh, with with Roosevelt, (laughs) you know? Uh, Yeah. Well, I I like the last time they met when uh, Stalin was looking down at uh, FDR's legs. He's like, no, no, next time we meet, I will come to you. It didn't quite happen that way because uh, they offered Stalin a lot of different places to meet. Uh, Scotland, I think Italy and stuff like that, and he turned them all down. As we're going to find out, Stalin did not like to be outside of territory that he could directly control with guns. And again, you can't blame the guy. So he is willing to concede a lot to FDR. And I and I think you're right. I think they gen- genuinely do have, on some level, some personal relationship where they don't detest each other and they and they can build on that. And I think, you know, as we've seen in previous episodes, Stalin had a major fear of flying. He was terrified of flying. <laughs> so if he could get somewhere like Yalta by car and train, much better. I'll do it. I'll do it. Sign me up. Apparently, as far back as 1934, Stalin had had a meeting with the British writer H.G. Wells. Mm-hmm. Uh, when and he had spoken of uh, Roosevelt's, according to Wells, he'd said, t- talked about Roosevelt's outstanding personal qualities, his initiative, courage, and determination. Undoubtedly, Stalin said, Roosevelt stands out as one of the strongest figures among all the captains of the contemporary capitalist world. And in later years, he privately called Roosevelt a great statesman, a clever educated, far-sighted, and liberal leader who prolonged the life of capitalism. Now, these are things that Stalin had said privately, off the record, about wow. Roosevelt. So I think there's a very strong indication and evidence that Stalin had a lot of respect for Roosevelt as a man, as uh, as a statesman, as a politician. And uh, I find that fascinating insight into Stalin's character and their relationship. So so we haven't even really gotten into the meeting yet, but you've just got to get the sense that the British are absolutely pissed off, frustrated, flummoxed, whatever word you want to use, and Churchill's right there with them. I mean, it's like, what do they got it? It's like... This is this is negotiation 101. You get together with your partner, FDR. You two together work out something, and then you present a united front to Stalin. FDR is so paranoid about about that perception that he's not even willing to meet with Churchill. They had lunch. Uh, I think they had lunch and maybe a dinner in Yalta. And actually, Churchill, uh, excuse me, Stalin got word of that, and he sent uh, FDR a telegram. And the telegram simply read, I said Yalta, not Malta. So get your ass over here. And again, the, the, ironically for uh, FDR, Stalin really did believe that they got together and, and tried to form some game plan before meeting with him. They had not, but that was already Stalin's suspicions, even though it was unfounded. Well, they were there at the same time, so it's right, that, a reasonable assumption. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But FDR George did Kinnan, everything he could to say, no, this we did not do anything. Yeah. Now, George Kennan, um, a.k.a. Kenan Thompson, uh, said that uh, Roosevelt said to him that he'd never met a man like Stalin before. Uh, Kennan wrote, I don't think FDR was capable of conceiving of a man of such profound iniquity coupled with enormous strategic cleverness. So if Kennan's right, 
uh, Roosevelt say, thought, look, he's a bad guy, but he's also a very, very clever guy. And uh, I mean, and we have to all agree and acknowledge that Stalin was something else, man. Like Absolutely. to to survive uh, as long as he did in leadership with uh, enemies left, right, and center. He was uh, he was a cunning fucker, man. Uh, he was a bit like Saddam Hussein, I think. You know, one of these guys that the classic strongman. Maybe like we'll be saying about Trump thirty years from now when God, he's still don't you. dictator of the United States. <laughs> I, I do, do want to add one more plank to this this backstory between FDR and Stalin. Um, between forty one and the fall of forty three, FDR is doing anything and everything he can to help Stalin to help the USSR because obviously they're fighting for their very existence. But after you have the Battle of Stalingrad, after the Battle of Kursk, uh, FDR starts to change his policy towards Stalin, at least in his, in, his own, in his own head. He's like, okay, you know what? Stalin's tough, but he's back from the brink now, so I can start being a little rougher with him. And he's starting to get a sense of who Stalin is. And he's like, Stalin will not do anything for you if he doesn't want to, if he doesn't have to, or if you don't give him anything. So as so between fall of 43 and uh, the late winter of uh, 45, FDR is starting to realize his own game plan toward, excuse me, FDR is starting to realize his game plan towards Stalin. He's like, we have to negotiate. There has to be a certain amount of prid quote, <laughs> Quid pro quo, because that is the only way you can get anywhere with Stalin. He's not going to give you anything, and he's not going to apologize for it. But if but, I can give him something, he'll give me something. But how different is that from any negotiation? That's negotiation 101. you got to give to take. you got to give a yes. little, take a little. No, but compared to when um, when it looked like uh Soviet Union was going to be crushed by Germany and you had the Lend-Lease, he was giving them everything he could. He wasn't asking anything back. He was just helping them as much as he could. But now that they're back from the brink, he starts thinking about the future and he can't just keep giving to Stalin because that will develop, that will continue on in their relationship. But but, but, but again, that wasn't altruism. They no, were giving, not, they were right. supporting the Soviets so they could defeat the Nazis. I mean, because they no, it was the still self-serving. No, but the point is, yeah. he was trying to, he was trying to, um, trying to morph their relationship because it was all one-sided. He was giving Stalin whatever he needed, even though it served FDR's purpose as well. That's not the point. But now he's realizing he's dealing with Stalin in a different phase of their of the war, and he's going to start having to get a little tougher with Stalin, but at the same time recognize that Stalin is realist and he's only going to give if he gets as well. Um, okay. Give it a little bit. Yeah, well, we'll see how. I mean, very hard to ask much of Stalin during these discussions. He's got all the cards. He's got all the cards, exactly. Um, getting back to uh, Roosevelt's view of Stalin, though, he also said to uh, Kennan that he thought that during Stalin's days in seminary, back when mm -hmm. he was a young man, something entered into his nature of the way in which a Christian gentleman should behave. <laughs> Kill all your enemies. And I would argue that that is very Christian. Let's look at the Crusades, look at the Inquisition, yeah. let's look at all of the Christian you. wars. Yeah. Do unto others before they do, they unto, do you, unto you. As Max Farquhar reminded me uh, last night. Um, uh, so. <clears throat> For the next few days uh, of, of the conference, too, um, Roosevelt continues to avoid personal meetings with Churchill, uh, despite Churchill's insistence that they get together. He still doesn't want to give talk. He doesn't want to give Stalin any reason to think he's being ganged up on. Little did either of them know that Stalin knew everything <laughs> they were going to talk about, <laughs> thanks to the Cambridge Five. <laughs> Anyway, so it oh didn't God. really matter. He knew all of their plans. Now, even Harry Hopkins, Roosevelt's most trusted confidant, was furious that mm -hmm. Roosevelt wouldn't meet with Churchill. And he, even he himself had a hard time getting through to the president, to see the president. On the evening of February 3rd, a couple of days before the first session, he was ranting to Anna Bodega, um, Roosevelt's daughter, Right. Uh, and she wrote in her diary, he gave me a long song and dance that FDR must see Churchill in the morning for a longer meeting. He made a few insulting remarks to the effect that after mm. all, FDR had asked for this job and that now, whether he liked it or not, 
he had to do the work and that it was imperative that FDR and Churchill have some pre-arrangements before the big conference started. Damn. So even Harry Hopkins is yeah. uh, like furious at FDR and thinks FDR is fucking this up uh, at the get-go. I wonder how much of this was truly FDR thinking he was clever or he's starting to, you know, his mind is not as sharp as it used to be because even if they had talked, you, you've got to, you've got to think that they knew the place was bugged. And even if they had talked, it, it, it would have been recorded or maybe they would have stood outside or something. I don't know. But yeah. um, I, I just wonder how much of this was truly being clever or, or FDR is just starting to lose it mentally. Well, I think people continue to debate that. But from what I've been reading, I think it's clever. I think it's strategic. Mm-hmm. Something I, some more I wanted to cover when in this uh, first meeting he has with Stalin, the pre-conference meeting. Um, uh, so he's dismissing the British on, on one hand. On the other hand, he's um, sort of talking about France and Germany. He uh, is trying to quietly convince Stalin to go along with Britain's... Uh, suggestion that France should be built back up and allowed to occupy part of Germany after the war, something Stalin was dead against, as we'll see as we go on. He's um, arguing that, look, if Germany does rise up against the war, it would be good to have a massive French army on the continent uh, able to hold back Germany while the British mobilise their forces and you can mobilise your forces. So he's kind of putting that idea in Stalin's mind, sort of justifying why France should have a seat at the table. He's also making fun of General Charles de Gaulle, the head of the provisional government of the French Republic, who, he says, compares himself to Joan of Arc. Um, as we'll see as we, later on, Stalin had no time at all for de Gaulle, even though they'd signed a pact at this point. No one had any time for de Gaulle, actually. Churchill didn't like him. Roosevelt didn't like him. Stalin hated him. But uh, anyway, the point here is that FDR is being clever. He's kind of telling Stalin what he wants to hear, but also sneaking in some of these British ideas. Meanwhile, when Stalin turns up to his room, Roosevelt mixes martinis and uh, hands Stalin a martini and apologizes for the lack of lemon peel in it, saying a Uh, good dry martini should have a twist of lemon. Um, Now, the next morning... Stalin has delivered to FDR a lemon tree bearing 200 lemons. <laughs> oh, the fuck? <laughs> now, I, I want to know who the fuck was given the assignment of finding a lemon tree in the middle of the Crimea, just been destroyed by the Nazis, wiped out. Imagine the, the word comes down... You're just some shit kicker. It probably goes to Molotov, goes to Berea, uh, and it comes down to, you're some shit kicker, and you're told... 27 levels later. Yeah. Comrade Stalin needs a lemon tree by tomorrow morning. Get it done. It's got to be a nice or tree, else. a pretty tree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what's what's that um, thing from Monty Python where they're describing a hedge? I want this kind of hedge and this and this and this and that. Anyway, so I, but yeah, I imagine this guy's got to get it. I mean, yeah, where in the fuck did he get that from? But on a more serious note, I want to go back to something you were saying, which I thought you said it. I think you kind of said it without literally saying it, but um, FDR is being clever. It's like if Churchill asks for something, Stalin might not give it to him because they don't have the same relationship. But here I am buttering you up. I'm sucking up to you or whatever. And I'm going to say one of the things that Britain wants, that Britain thinks is a good idea. And maybe you'll say, and that's about the French, about letting them have a part of Germany that's to build them back up so they can have a large army there in case we need them. So if it comes from me, maybe Stalin will be more susceptible to it and say yes. Uh, so I, I just think it's very, like you were saying, clever and brilliant of FDR. But as we're going to find out again, because Stalin knows everything that they want, he's already thought this through. What we're going to find out later is that Stalin's going to say, yes, I think France should have a part of Germany. But what they don't know is there's going to be a price for that. And it's not going to be a price that the uh, that America and Britain are going to like very much. So, again, Stalin has already thought this through because he already knows what they're going to ask for. Indeed. I actually did manage to track down a recording of this guy who had to go get the lemon tree. Hello, Peter. What's happening? 
Uh, we have sort of a problem here. Yeah, you apparently didn't put one of the new cover sheets on your TPS reports. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I, I forgot. Mm, yeah. You see, we're putting the cover sheets on all TPS reports now before they go out. Did you see the memo about this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have the memo right here. I just uh, forgot, but uh, it's not shipping out till tomorrow, so there's no problem. Yeah. If you could just go ahead and make sure you do that from now on, that would be great. And uh, I'll go ahead and make sure you get another copy of that memo. Okay? Yeah, no, I, I, I have the memo. I've got it. It's right. He's like, Hello, you could just go ahead and uh, get me a lemon tree with 200 lemons by the morning. That would be great. Okay, good on you, pal. Picture um, Beria, who's killed, you know, what, hundreds of thousands or millions. Who, who knows with his own hand? Look, I need you to get me a tree. I... I'd really appreciate it if you could be here by morning, okay? Yeah. Thanks, buddy. And I it's got to have, not just a tree, it's got to have 200 lemons on it. That just would have scared the shit out of me if he had asked me nicely. But it's not just the tree, it's got to have lemons on it. you got to get the tree, <laughs> find a tree get, with lemons, get it, it dug up, <laughs> transported, without the lemons falling off. They better not fucking fall off. Oh, fuck. And little, <laughs> in, he wanted each lemon individually wrapped with a little bow. And, and I want a bow on the tree, exactly, so I can present it to him. Marilyn Monroe's lipstick kiss on each one. <laughs> I think she was a thing in 1945, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, so anyway, all this is going on. The conference started. FDR's in the driver's seat, which he will be for all the plenary sessions. They, they all started around about 4 p.m., uh, and went into the early evening and then they all went out for dinner and then usually had meetings later on with their private circle. Everyone was uh, Every one of the plenary sessions obviously is attended by the big three, their interpreters and a variety of political and military guys depending on the topic of the meeting. Mm. And I want to run through some of the characters who were there because they, they're important to understand who these guys were, uh, because quite a few of them play a significant role in what comes next. So I wanted to start with Admiral Lay, uh, FDR's chief of staff. Admiral Lay was uh, an American naval officer, obviously, because he was an admiral. Mm-hmm. He uh, was the senior most United States military officer on active duty during World War Two. Mm. He chaired the chief of staff, chiefs of staff. Even it was, the, I don't think they had that title of the chairman of the chiefs of staff at the time, but that's basically his job. Right. Uh, major decision maker during the war. He continued under Truman and retired in 1949. Um, from 1942 until 1949, he was the highest ranking member of the U.S. military, reporting only to the president. And, and if I just add to that, because of him and because of his position and knowledge and as much as FDR trusted him, uh, the president did not have to hardly ever meet with George Marshall. Um, and that was done on purpose because they wanted to keep it simple for FDR, let him focus on the political aspect. So, again, this happened on, on Malta with Churchill and the British were bitching about um, Eisenhower not being neutral enough or whatever, being too pro-American as opposed to the British. They made it, George Marshall, when he was dressing them down, said, look, they um, FDR and George Marshall ha- hardly ever meet because we're trying to keep him neutral. We're trying to keep him to be a neutral ally. We're not even going to get into the conversation about Churchill trying to influence um Eisenhower with his personality and his eloquent, eloquent speaking. So again, the Americans, and we can't convey this enough, they just shut the British down and they pretty much let them know what their position was going to be for the rest of the war. So again, it would just been, it would have been interesting to be in that little room with uh, George Marshall, just tearing into the British to let them know what's what from now on. It was probably very impressive. What's that got to do with Admiral Lay? No, because of him, he was a go between, between, uh, George Marshall and FDR. So he he was the one who would give um, FDR the military briefings and situations and things like that. So he didn't have to meet with George Marshall so they could keep George Marshall and Eisenhower neutral to be allied commanders and not American commanders first. Ah, oh, right. Okay. Then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, Lay was the 
first uh, de facto chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff too, by the way. Another guy that was there was Justice James Burns. Again, going to be... A, oh, sorry, before I finish on Lay. Lay is one of only two guys um, who don't include Churchill who were at Yalta who wrote memoirs uh, mm. of, of the events afterwards. Um, Justice James Burns, a very important figure in the Cold War. An American politician from the state of South Carolina. <laughs> I think you know anything okay. about this guy, dude? Is he like uh, revered in your there, home state? There's some things named after him. Yeah, yeah. You from South Carolina or North Carolina? South Carolina. Hey, hey, South- hey! You fucking take that back, South Carolina. Sh- the game Charlotte. I thought Charlotte was in North Carolina. Huh? Charlotte is, yeah. Charlotte's from North Carolina. Charleston is in oh, South Oh, Charleston. Carolina. You're from Charleston, Charleston not Charlotte. Charleston, okay. yeah. Um, now I'm pissed. Sorry. No, seriously, so is Burns uh, like a hero down there? Uh, the, yeah, there. The, I remember the name. It's been a while since I've lived there, but I remember there's some stuff named after him. Oh, and just one other thing about um, about Leahy, uh, Leahy, excuse me, that you were talking about. FDR says to him, Bill, I wish you would attend all these political meetings in order that we may have someone in whom I have full confidence who would remember everything we have done. So again, he knew his time was um, not long for this world, and he wanted someone to be there to sit in all the meetings so there would be some, um, some uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Shit. Uh, some God, it just left me. It fucking left me. But consistency. There would, there would be someone who were, it was in on all the meetings and they would have an idea of what FDR was attempting to do at Yalta. Hmm. I'm glad you got that out finally. God, fuck consistency. So Justice Burns. Um, now, during his long career, he was a U.S. representative, 1911 to 1925, U.S. senator, 31 to 41, Justice of the Supreme Court, 41 and 42, Secretary of State, 45 to 47, and then eventually Governor of South Carolina, 51 to 55. Um, At this point in time, he wasn't Secretary of State. That happens uh, under Truman's administration. Mm -hmm. Um, Very close to Roosevelt, one of the most powerful men in American politics in the mid-40s. In fact, he apparently had the nickname the Assistant President in Washington circles. Now, just before all of this had gone down, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Roosevelt has just had his last inauguration before he goes to Yalta. In the lead up to that, in 43, he had made Burns believe that he was going to make Burns his vice presidential uh, candidate. Oh. at the Democratic Convention, but he ended up throwing his support behind some fucking nobody called Harry Truman. From Missouri. So uh, Burns, obviously, not happy, Jan. <laughs> <clears throat> and um, to make it up to him, FDR invites him along to Yalta. Now, as we will see, after FDR's dead, Truman becomes president. He makes Burns his Secretary of State. And Burns is one of the very few senior American political or military leaders that uh, support the idea that they should drop nuclear bombs on Japan. And we will get to that in uh, fucking, I don't know, 20 episodes. (laughs) Let let, let me ask you a quick question. If someone says to you, look, I was going to make you vice president, put you in line for the big job. Can't now. So, so sorry. How about this? I'm going to go on a trip soon and I'll take you with me to make up for it. Does that sound fair? <laughs> yeah, there might have been more to it than that. But uh, yeah. So he takes him along anyway. And as we'll see, uh, he, he wasn't involved in the first meeting and Burns was furious, spat the dummy. Uh, so he's an interesting character. It's not the same um, Burns as uh, from The Simpsons. I don't, I don't watch it. Yes. Show, but okay. Yeah, yeah. Same. Absolutely the same guy, okay. Mr. Burns. Yes. Alexander Cadogan, one of the British, was there. He was an aristocrat, British diplomat, civil servant, permanent undersecretary for foreign affairs from thirty-eight to forty-six. He goes on to be the first permanent representative of the United Kingdom to the United Nations. 
So mm. Cadogan is there. Right. Andrei Vyshinsky is the uh, Soviet Deputy People's Commissar for Foreign Affairs. He sits in on these meetings. Also known as the State State Prosecutor for Stalin's uh, purges and also in the Nuremberg trials later on. He was the Soviet Foreign Minister from 49 to 53 and Deputy Foreign Minister under Molotov since 1940. Quick question. could we guess mm. how all the trials ended, the ones that the Soviets conducted? Uh, no, let's not <laughs> guess that. Let's save it up, man. Okay. Stop spoiling it. Sorry. They let them all go and gave them all dashes to go and yes. live in Moscow. Anyway. Um, interestingly, Vyshinsky is a Pole, not a Russian. It was originally a Menshevik, ah. Menshevik and he and Stalin met in prison uh, when they were both very young, before the revolution, when they were both young activists. In uh, 1917, Vyshinsky, after the uh, February Revolution, but before the October Revolution, was a minor official in the Russian provisional government, and he signed an order to have Lenin arrested. <laughs> but then the October Revolution put an end to that, and now he's deputy foreign minister. But originally a Menshevik, and so, you know, he's one of these guys, not a Russian, not a Bolshevik from the get-go, so kind of on the, you know, on the outs, but the, he survived this long. Wow. Um, also, uh, from the Soviets, there's Andrei Gromikyo, Gromikyo and Fedor Gusev, who were the Soviet ambassadors to Washington and London, respectively. Gromikyo was the Minister of Foreign Affairs from 57 to 85. Damn. Just think of the changes he's seen. 57 to 85. Rock and roll music and everything else. Wow. <laughs> uh, and was sort of one of the, the top guys in Soviet foreign policy until he retired in 1988. So he was there. Uh, and in, in the 40s, he was known in the West as Mr. Nyet. Uh, because he would, uh, uh, once they created the, Sov- the the Security Council in the UN, he had the Soviets' position on the Security Council and he would just use the Soviet veto for everything. So he was known <laughs> as Mr. Nyet. Played a direct role in the Cuban Missile Crisis because he was the Soviet Foreign Minister at the time. So uh, obviously he's going to play a large role in future episodes. Um Another Brit who was there, Sir Archibald Clark Kerr, British ambassador to Moscow, born in Australia, believe it or not. And if an Aussie is listening to this and wondering if he's in any way related to Governor General Kerr, who famously played a role in the dismissal of Gough Whitlam in the early 70s. uh, No, I don't think he was. Uh, yeah. I looked that up, couldn't find any connection. But he uh, he had been the ambassador to the Soviet Union between 42 and 46 and to the United States then from 46 to 48. Good story I read about Kerr. During his posting in Moscow, he kept going back to the Foreign Office in London looking for more clear directions. Uh, never really got it. And then finally in 43, he got a message from Churchill. Right. Churchill's message was, you want to... <clears throat> I'll do it in the voice. You want to do... <laughs> Can't remember my Churchill voice. You want a directive? All right. I don't mind kissing Stalin's bum, but I'll be damned if I'll lick his ass. <laughs> Thank you, sir. That's all the clarification I needed. Yeah, perfect. Just what we needed. Thank you very much. Um, also there, Avril Harriman, the American ambassador to Moscow, who we've mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Uh, now... One other guy who was there, another American who people may have heard of, was mm-hmm. Alger Hiss. I'm not sure, Alger or Alga? Alger Hiss, I think you pronounce it. I, I've heard Alger. Alger? Okay, we'll go with that then, as okay. in Algeria. Alger right. Hiss. Now, anyone who's read sort of any Cold War history will have heard this name. Uh, in 1944, Hiss had been named the director of the Office of Special Political Affairs, which was involved in planning post-war international organizations, particularly Mm. he was uh, the executive secretary at the Dumbarton Oaks Conference, which had drawn up the plans for the United Nations. Wow. 
1948, he gets accused of being a Soviet spy and is convicted of perjury in connection with this in 1950. Uh, One of the guys that uh, chased him uh, down as being a spy was a relatively unknown Californian congressman who served on the House Committee of Un-American Activities by the name of Tricky Dick Nixon. (laughs) Nixon launched his political career uh, in hot pursuit of his. Uh, He gets thrust into the public spotlight as a result of this, which helps him move from the House of Representatives to the Senate in 1950. He becomes vice president in 52 and, of course, finally president in 68. And we all know how that turned out. Um, So, yeah, he really comes to limelight with the Hiss case. Joe McCarthy also Mm -hmm. launched his anti-communist career off the back of the Hiss case. (laughs) And we're going to go into the Hiss case, obviously, in a lot of detail later on. Right. I thought about jumping forward and doing it now, but we've done enough spy stuff. Uh, I will say, though, that Hiss proclaimed his innocence and fought his perjury conviction until his death at the age of 1992. Good for him. Which was in 1996. Wait a minute. However. Age 92. Age 92 in 1996. Gotcha. All right. Thank you. However. Yeah. After he died and the Soviet archives opened up, there was evidence to support the fact that he was, in fact, a Soviet spy during the time of the Yalta Conference. Oh! But he was working for the military branch of Soviet intelligence and was virtually unknown to the political branch until after the conference. And uh, his military handlers for some reason, showed little interest in any political information he could provide, probably because they had more than they could fucking deal with coming from the Cambridge Five. Yeah, we don't care, Hiss. Shut up, Hiss. We can't interpret what we've got already. Yeah, shit, dude, we don't need it. We're good. We're good. Come back next month. We're really, really, we're quite good now. We We don't need any more. Yeah, we got this. Yeah. (laughs) Just like the DNC said about the election. We got this. In the bag. But in this case, they actually did have it. Yeah, they, they, they weren't just bluffing. In spades. Um, well, listen, man, that's an hour. Uh, oh, okay. Um, I yeah. think uh, we could probably so wrap some... that up here. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, yeah, so we covered the major players that people are going to help the big three and that kind of stuff. And now we can, next time, obviously, jump into it. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, it's, it's uh, trust me. That's interesting stuff. That's, that's you, you need to know all of that before we get into it. Absolutely. Uh, next next episode, I'm going to be talking about fucking. Uh, I'm going to start what? the next episode with no! lots of fucking. Yeah, really. It so, better be MP4 uh, with a video. Yeah, uh, no, that's that's no. just between you and me. But okay. uh, no, lots of lots of fucking uh, going on in the beginning of the next episode. So stay tuned for that. That's a cliffhanger. Lots of lots of lots of banging going on. Uh, you might wonder, was it an FDR Stalin Churchill threesome? Tune in next week to find out, kids. What the fuck, America? From POTUS, what the fuck are you thinking? I wasn't thinking. I just pulled a lever. curtain has descended across the continent. military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. 